For those of you who did not know, Anya has a lot of um, secret musical talents. Uh, her rendition of the Jaws theme music, definitely. That, that was really special, Anya. Thank you for that. Who are we, we talking uh, with today, Julie? Let's let's contextualize this. <laughs> so we have uh, sharks on the brain today because we are about to speak with Monique Fallows. Um, Monique is a uh, an ocean conservationist. She's done incredible work on behalf of sharks, especially great white sharks in her um, her neighborhood, her area in South Africa. She leads shark diving expeditions. She's been involved with the storytelling for Discoveries Shark. Her husband is a very well-known ocean and fine art photographer. And so we're going to be covering all things sharks and I guess maybe maybe Jaws a little bit too. <laughs> Should I sing this Let's for her? <laughs> no, please don't do that. <laughs> well, I guess to start off, um, could you tell us a little bit you know, about yourself? Where are you currently and what are you currently working on? Well, my name is Monique Fellows, and I'm chatting to you guys from Cape Town, South Africa this morning. And uh, my husband and I uh, own an ecotourism business, which uh, is a marine ecotourism business specializing in great white sharks and also other species of sharks. But I think that I would describe myself as a naturalist, first and foremost, and um, although our business side of things is in tourism, um, uh, I'd say I'm a naturalist because we spend a huge amount of time immersing ourselves in wildlife. So not only on the sea, but also in what I call the bush, which is like the, you know, the African outback. And yeah, so all our time is spent with nature. And um, I think you learn a huge amount by spending time on the ocean or in the bush and just watching animals in their natural environment. And how did you get into this space? How did you decide that this was what you were going to do for well, a living? And yeah, I think, I think you're going to enjoy this answer because I used to be a professional tennis player way back okay. about uh, 25 years ago, 23 years ago. And um, I wanted to be professional. Another, I was on the tour. I unfortunately didn't make it to the point where I could actually make a living out of it. And you know, in life, everything is about timing. And I met Chris at a quite a crucial time in my life where I was coming to the realization that tennis probably wasn't going to be the thing that was going to, you know, uh, uh, make money in my life. <laughs> so I was at the point where I was thinking that I need to give up. And um, Chris is an extremely generous person. And when I said that I, you know, I'm going to give up tennis, but I have no idea what I'm going to do. He said to me, well, you know, why don't you just come out on the boat, um, come and see some sharks with me, just relax, enjoy yourself. And, you know, the, eventually you're going to decide what you're going to do. And um, what I really like sharing about my story, and I don't feel embarrassed at all about it, is that um, before I met Chris, I had never been on a boat before. Um, I knew absolutely nothing about sharks. In, in fact, the only thing I knew was that there was one species of shark, and that was a great white shark. <laughs> and also, I'd never been in the bush before. <laughs> so I was completely green to anything to do with sharks, wildlife, going to see, um, you know, anything like that. 
But um, when I did actually go on, on the boat with Chris, um, I not only fell in love with him, but I also fell in love with the sharks and wildlife. And the reason why I love sharing my story is because, you know, so many people think that to be able to work with nature or wildlife, you know, you have to be a marine biologist or you had to have gone to university and studied science and that type of thing. But I, I think it's really important to know that, you know, if you just put yourself out there and you're passionate about something, you know, you, you, you can still have a career in it. And in terms of learning about wildlife and learning about sharks and the environment, that all came from actually just being out there and watching what happens naturally. So, um, yeah, so it, it wasn't as if my I was passionate about sharks from a young age. It came later in life. And I can say that it is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, Chris and I get to share incredible moments together, you know, um, absolute highs watching, you know, things that happen in in, uh, in nature, you know, from a uh, behavior point of view. And yeah, it's just taught me lots and lots of lessons in life. And I feel very privileged and, you know, grateful to have had the opportunities that, that I do. That's so cool. And it's funny because I was going to ask, were you that kid who collected little shark toys and, you know, asking your parents <laughs> to take you to the aquarium and rewatching Jaws like every week? But yeah. this is a passion that you discovered, you know, a little later on. And I love yeah. that, you know, it just reminds people that just being open-minded, a lot of incredible things can come into your life that maybe you never expected. Absolutely. And I think what's also interesting is you don't always learn everything at school or in textbooks. <laughs> There's so much that we have learned just by watching nature. So, yeah, you know, um, I think it's just important to, you know, when we're out there, something that, that, that we do all the time is we collect a huge amount of data. So we pay a lot of attention to, you know, weather conditions. Um, you know, we, we record the sharks that we see, we record the behavior that we see. And just from keeping those records, we've also been able to learn a huge amount o over the last 20 years. Could you take us back to that first moment where you did encounter a shark out on a boat? I don't know if it was with Chris or with somebody else, but do you remember that first time that you saw one in real life? I, I do, and I can tell you that I had to wait quite a long time for it. <laughs> um, so, so the great white sharks that we saw at Seal Island were seasonal, so we would only see them for four to six months of the year. And um, I'd known Chris for about four months um, before I actually saw my first great white shark. So there was a huge amount of buildup. <laughs> and, um, yeah, the first couple of times that we, we went to sea, we actually didn't even see a shark. And I got terribly seasick. <laughs> so it wasn't a, a great introduction. But the very first great white shark that I saw was a breaching great white shark. And, you know, that is one of the most spectacular things, not only to see a shark doing, but probably one of the sp most spectacular things to see in all of nature. So it was an, it was an unbelievable welcome to great white sharks. So, um, you know, this was what made our area very, very special and very unique was to see the breaching behavior. And I was lucky enough that that was the first time I saw a great white shark. And what was that experience like seeing that in person for the first time? I mean, especially having not known much about the ocean world or marine life, and then you see that in person, I imagine that must have been pretty, uh, for me, maybe it would have been overwhelming, like in a good way. <laughs> it was, it's actually quite a difficult thing to explain because a breach takes seven tenths of a second. So it's extremely fast. 
So, you know, when you see it for the first time, your 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 brain doesn't really compute what your eyes saw. <laughs> so it's almost like you you need to see it again to really take it in. But, you know, the overwhelming experience is complete awe at what an incredible animal this is and how magnificent it is and how amazing it can it is that it can do what it's doing. And and for you, how did you get into the storytelling side of things? I mean, you and I kind of have similar backgrounds to a certain extent. We, we both played sport professionally and then we both entered into the storytelling space. I don't pick up the camera except to take pictures of my dog. Um, so I'm not on that side of it. But how did you get into that side of it? Um, well, actually, actually, funny enough, I always enjoyed writing. Um, and then when we started, um, you know, spending so much time out there at sea with, with the Great Whites, uh, Chris has always taken photographs, which is obviously an amazing way to, to tell stories. But um, I felt it was really important to share with with other people, you know, their emotional experiences and, you know, uh, telling people about what you're seeing and talking about the behavior and, and really just using that as a medium to to put across really positive and interesting messages about great white sharks. So, you know, we were quite lucky that um, from a visual perspective, we always had Chris's great images to go along with the storytelling and from my side, I just really enjoyed writing about it. And if I remember back to when I first started doing blogs, I think it was about 2001-ish, it was, that was quite new at the time, you know, blog, blogging was the thing to do. So I thought, okay, well, let's, let's give it a go because it's also you know, good for awareness of your business and everything. But, you know, uh, the bottom line is, is I just really enjoyed, you know, telling people about sharks and our experiences because I've always felt that it was such a privilege to do what we what we did and I actually owed it to the sharks to tell people more about them in the right way. That's incredible. And I'm glad that you mentioned Chris's photography. You know, for those who don't know, Chris Fowles has done just I mean, really incredible marine ocean photography. I think he he seems to focus mostly in black and white images. Is that correct? That's right. Um, when we um, had lockdown or COVID lockdown in 2020, um, our our business grew to a grinding drew to a grinding halt, <laughs> and um, we weren't able to operate. Um, South Africa's borders were closed, and uh, we had a lot of time in our hands. And one of the things that we've been wanting to try and do for probably two three years leading up to that was to launch Chris's fine art photography brand. So you know what it's like in life when you get busy with and you're running a business, you know, the things that you, you know, are wanting to get to, you don't always get to. You always do the things that are necessary. So um, COVID really gave us an, a great opportunity to work on that. And in October 2020, Chris actually had his first show at the Saatchi Gallery in London, which launched his um, fine art brand. So um, there is quite a lot to talk about in terms of what's happened to the great white sharks in South Africa. Um, and it is a, a, tra a a really sad and tragic story in that we do not see them at Seal Island anymore. And I guess our call to action is that, you know, we need to be able to tell, tell the world our story of, you know, the experiences we had with great white sharks and what a travesty it is that we are no longer seeing them in certain areas. And using Chris's photography, it's a great way of bringing attention to the problem but then we also use other photography. So, you know, other shark species and, you know, animals in Africa. So, you know, beautiful tusker elephants, black mane lions to show the world that this is what we do have. And this is why it's so worth fighting for, for our planet to, to become sustainable and healthy, you know, going forward for future generations. 
And for context, for folks who are not in South Africa, who don't know anything about great whites, what was the environment for them like prior to seeing this decrease in population? What would be sort of like a normal population size in your area? Or, you know, would people at the beach, you know, or going out fishing, for example, just see them bopping around? Yeah. So um, Chris was the first person to actually uh, see and observe a breaching great white shark ever anywhere in the world. And this was at Seal Island in 1996. Um, So it was really a a journey to understand, you know, what this little tiny little island is all about. And um, what we what we did begin to discover is that it was um, home to great white sharks hunting Cape fur seals. And this is why they breached out of the water. It was a, it was a hunting technique or more the culmination of a, of a hunt. So a seal would be swimming on the surface, great white would come out from underneath, and then the inertia would take the shark out of the water, which was a breach. And this is what made Seal Island famous. Um, in terms of being able to see sharks, it's a really difficult animal to see. It's not like, you know, sometimes you can be driving along the coastline and you'll see a whale, you know, and, and all, you know, people, it's quite accessible to people. With great white sharks and any shark in general, you actually ha- actively have to go and look for them. So, um, yeah, so in, in order to spend time with them, you know, you have to have a boat, you need to go out with an operation, you need to understand the animal and how to find it. So it, it is quite a quite a difficult thing. And in South Africa, there, there are a number of hotspots, or I'd say there were. Um, there's our area, Seal Island, where, where we work. Um, there's a, and then along our east coast, there are two other areas. There's Khanspai and there's also Mossel Bay. So these are all um, seal colonies. But inshore of the seal colonies, there are other smaller species of shark, which is a, actually another really important space, uh, prey species for the great white sharks. And this is why we think the great whites were found in these areas. I feel like it takes a very special type of person to want to actively go <laughs> find sharks. <laughs> I feel like... It's actually so, really addictive. <laughs> Like, I just, I, I, you know, I'm scared of spiders. I'm scared of anything that I feel like could crawl on me, let alone someone, something that could jump out of the water, I feel like, and just eat me whole. <laughs> so <laughs> what, as far as just like your personality and Chris's personality, is there a difference between the two of you in terms of like how you view adventure and these expeditions and, and yeah. what excites you the most about what you're doing out there? Well, Chris is always the one with initiative and he's like a ping pong ball. He bounces off the walls and we're going here and we're going there and we're doing this and we're doing that. And I'm I'm the one that's like picking up the pieces behind, you know, making it happen, <laughs> which I think is pretty That important. sounds like my relationship with Julia. <laughs> <laughs> well, you both understand. <laughs> but, um, and, and I'm Monique in that relationship. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I, I think it's really great um, that you've got someone that's got so much energy and, you know, so many ideas and, you know, making things happen. But those sort of people, sometimes they have the ideas and then they don't go anywhere. <laughs> so I think it's great that, you know, I can help put it all together and, you know, make it happen. And and at the end of the day, we both, although we've, you know, completely different personalities, we both have that core shared passion for sharks and wildlife. And as I said before, you know, there's nothing better than sharing an incredible experience with someone. You know, it just takes it to a whole different level and your memories are that much stronger. So, yeah, it, you, know, for, you know, being a team works extremely well on so many different levels. 
And as far as what you've learned about sharks too, being out there, what is what is the most surprising thing that you have learned that maybe you didn't expect? Okay, so so bearing in mind, I knew nothing about sharks, as I already told you guys. The most surprising and the most endearing thing is that sharks have personalities, <laughs> and. It, it's it's very surprising for for people you know that that you know have never spent time with them but just like you and I are different you know you've got people that are really shy and retiring you've got sharks that are exactly exactly the same way you know they um they won't come to the boat and we'll only recognize them from being on predatory hunting events we'll have some sharks that are extremely bold and they'll be up at the boat all the time wanting to interact um, you have some sharks that are super relaxed <laughs> and you just wonder, well, how, how is the shark a predator? How does it catch anything? So, yes, most definitely the most surprising thing about great white sharks is that they have very distinct characters and personalities. And one of the best things about working with them was actually getting to know the sharks on an individual basis. So, you know, we would have sharks that would come back every year that we would we would recognize and they would behave in the same way as the year before and the year before that and the year before that. So, you know, they, there wasn't a lot of change, although there was change in their growth and, you know, that type of thing. But they always remained the, the same shark that we knew. And they, they really were, they were our friends. Oh and goodness. are you keeping notes? Wow. While, when, you, when you meet these sharks year after year, are you keeping notes around okay. each of them so that you can... Okay. Yeah, so so we ha- we we keep very um, definite data. So when we you know when we see a shark, we talk about the size, we talk about you know injuries that they might have, um, you know different characteristics and their personalities. So yeah, and you know it really helps when you when you do record stuff like that because your memory is quite short. <laughs> um, it's great to have you know to go back over the last twenty years and have this incredible data set. Um, and yeah, so basically we can ask just about any question we want about behavior, you know, numbers of sharks, particular sharks, or individual sharks, and we can pull those answers from the database. So that is a very important part of working with wildlife, even if you're not a professor or a doctor. <laughs> I have uh, two follow-up questions, one more scientific leaning and then one that's a bit more fun. Uh, for the first one, I mean, it's so cool that they have personalities. I would have never guessed that. I don't know why. You th- I, I guess my bias is seeing fish sort of collectively swim together in these groups. So I sort of have like maybe the same with sheep, sort of like a group think, you know, just kind of follow each other um, along perception of a lot of aquatic animals. But that's amazing. And so I'm wondering, you know, if you start to observe a shark for a certain amount of time, you see what its personality is like. And then a year or two later, you see a change to that personality would that be considered normal for you? Can their personalities evolve over time with age? Or is it a warning sign that maybe something has, something's wrong with the shark? So that's really interesting in, in that over the last 20 years of the sharks that we do know extremely well, their personalities have not changed. <laughs> wow. So I th- just think it goes to show how strong their character must be that they, they're going through life and they're still behaving in the same manner as they usually do. So my other question, psychiatrists that look after them. I don't know. I feel like I feel like my sign is a shark. <laughs> I, I 
and you know, I looked at my Chinese sign the other day, and it said I was a snake, but I don't know if they have the shark within the Chinese animal. You, you can swap easily. Symbols, swap. but I think I think I'm the shark because I don't know how much I've evolved. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's to do that they actually have evolved very well, and that's why they do stay the same. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, too. Evolve for consistency. And so my other question, this one sometimes get us, gets us into trouble with folks who have multiple animals that they're involved with, but do you have any favorites? Like the sharks that you've gotten to know over the years? Absolutely. Are there any where you're like, that's my favorite one, or those are Absolutely. my favorites? Yeah, so... So really, they're, they're three favorite great white sharks of, of mine. And um, the first one, her name is Rasta. And she's called Rasta because, honestly, she's a Rastafarian. I've ne- we've never known a shark to be as relaxed as she is. And what she would do is she would swim up to the boat, she would stick her head out the water, and then she would just hang just with her head out the water and just look at everyone. And then she would gently bump into the boat and just hardly even cruise around. So <laughs> that was definitely a shark that we were just, we can't believe that you actually catch seals or, you know, the other things that you have to do to be a shark. She was just um, absolutely amazing. And everybody that saw her absolutely fell in love with her. She was extremely, extremely uh, special animal on the planet, actually, one of those great animals. And um, we do know that she did actually manage to hunt and feed because the last time we saw her, she was just over five meters in length. So I think that's about 18 foot. So she was an extremely large animal the last time we saw her. Um, and then my two other favorites is um, two polar opposites. There's a, two, a male shark called Cuz, and then a second male shark called Shy Guy. And both of these sharks we recorded seeing over a 12 year period. Um, so it's a very long time. And um, Cuz we got to know very well because he absolutely loved the boat. He would always come up to the boat you know, come and say hi. He wouldn't say hi to everyone, but he was very curious. So he would spend quite a lot of time interacting with the boat. Whereas Shy Guy, um, over the 12-year period, he only came to our boat once. But all the other times that we saw him, which was on about 60 different events, was was when he was hunting seals. So he had um, a, a cut out of the top of his tail fin. So every time he popped on the surface eating a seal, we could we could see who it was. And we we're like, oh, okay, that's, that's Shy Guy. Um, but I, I think I think we just love both of them because they were just so different and also because we saw them over such a long period of time and it was just so interesting to see how different the two sharks could be sharing the same environment. That is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And then as far as, I guess, you know, Shark Week, it, it's, it's, I, it's probably one of the most important shows, in my opinion, as far as just educating people on sharks. And you've gotten to work on several of the different seasons how did you get involved with that show okay so so chris and i um were the facilitators for the air jaws um series which uh, the first one was in 2002 i think and i think we are yeah quite a few years into it now but the the breaching sharks of seal island were the big draw card and I think um, it's it's been a, a huge addition to Shark Week. I think um, you know so many of the shows are centered around that that behavior now. So it's a great opportunity to reach different walks of life. You know, I know Discovery Channel Shark Week is not 
only watched by shark fans. It's people that are, you know, interested in the, the show side of it. And it's a really great way to get those kind of people interested in sharks and, you know, hopefully wanting them to, to, to learn more. And I think we've always felt that with those shows, it's um, so important to tell the story of sharks in the right way. You know, yes, they're predators, but no, they're not man-eating killing machines, you know. Um, so, yeah, we always felt it was a great responsibility to to showcase the animal and its magnificence, but also, you know, put across the right feelings about sharks. So, yeah, we try to take it really seriously in, in portraying the animals in the right way. And I think it does have that really diverse reach in terms of audience. Like I know just from Instagram, there are people who I follow who you might see them and you'd say, okay, this is the quintessential like Los Angeles fashion person, probably not engaged with too much substantive stuff, but they have (laughs) Shark Week watch parties and they've got the themed cocktails and all their friends are over and they're all posting about Shark Week. And that's when I, I think first heard about it, not because I just follow those people on Instagram. That sounds weird. But that's when I realized just like, I think like how much of a part of our culture Shark Week had become was when I started to see just the diversity of people on social media who were talking about it. So that's that's really cool because I do think that our, our culture and pop culture in particular does get a lot of things wrong about a lot of things. And when I think about shark storytelling, there's obviously Jaws and you know, these mm. portrayals of done. sharks as done, these, done, like, done. yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you can't get that out of your head, these monsters. And then I've noticed in publications like the New York Times, there's been a lot more shark reporting recently, especially about sharks, great whites, you know, in the Cape Cod area, the Northeast yeah. uh, part of the United States. Um, from your perspective, you know, what, what are some of the, the big things that pop culture does not get right about these animals and could do a better job of articulating? Yeah, so it's interesting that you talk about Jaws um, because I, I would say uh, it, it has changed. I mean, it's almost the question is what have they got wrong and what have they got right? So in the beginning, most people you know, only thought of a shark as a man-eating animal. And, of course, that's not at all what they're about. They, they're very discerning predators. Um, you know, if they wanted to, to catch, kill and eat humans, there would be hundreds of hundreds of us being taken every day because we're pretty easy things to catch. So, you know, people always had that perception of them. But what I would say is now right about their perception is most people understand that sharks are not that way anymore. And I think they just see them as important predators in our ecosystem. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting over the last 20 years to, to kind of watch that that change in the you know cons- uh, in in how people thought about sharks from I, I guess what was the wrong way to whereas I think nowadays people recognize them for being predators and that they're important in our ecosystem. But I also just wanted to just mention something about Jaws, which is quite interesting. Is you know with the with the guests that would come on the boat and you know obviously wanting to see sharks, I often ask you know oh, you know how are you interested in sharks and. It is amazing the amount of people that would say it was from watching the movie Jaws. And and although people think that, I mean, yes, Jaws was not good for sharks because it gave them, you know, such a bad reputation. But I think on, on, an, on another hand and on the positive side, it definitely got people interested in sharks. So, yeah, you know, we mustn't forget that it did, did stimulate that interest and and yeah, then it was up to to people like us and you know people spreading storytelling about sharks to put it the right way. 
Well, I just, I think that just speaks to the power of storytelling though, and just broadly speaking and how it can reach such diverse groups of people. And, you know, I, I, I can personally say that outside of Shark Week, I, when I've actually never seen Jaws, I just know the theme music. <laughs> so I, I don't, <laughs> but, uh, as far as just the the importance of the role that you guys have in changing the perception that people have of sharks, um, what do you think, though, as far as the show itself, why do you think it is so popular? Outside of all the different storytelling elements that go into the show, why do you think it's become as big as it has and has reached such a diverse group. And I, I'm even thinking of like, there's, um, there's, I just saw recently that this, uh, comedy group and practical jokers are going to be hosting, um, one of the weeks for shark week. And, you know, now like you have comedians that are involved. I know there's a lot of celebrity guest, uh, appearances that have been made too. Why do you think it has gotten so big? I, I think it's because sharks are very emotive. And I still think it's this concept that there's, an, there's a, a creature swimming around in the ocean that can bite us into and eat us. <laughs> I mean, that's not reality. But I think yeah. that um, everybody has a reaction to the word shark. And I, th- and, I think, and I think it's probably based around our primeval senses that people are fascinated by them and want to, want to know more about them. Well, I even think of the show Shark Tank. I don't know if you've watched Shark Tank, but the, uh, you know, the investors are, they're like the word shark, I think it's supposed to, uh, you know, uh, have some sort of connotation that they're tough, they're mean. They're sneaky. Type of deal. That's how, yeah. But it seems, you know, it seems like shy guy is actually someone that I'd want to date if (laughs) if it were a person. (laughs) And it's interesting that you say that because- um, we found that people responded so well to learning about the personalities of the sharks and understanding them, you know, on a more intimate level. It really did help change their minds about what sharks are and, and, and you know, and who they are. So, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I think they've got a bad and deserved reputation. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a good segue because something that, you know, when Ani and I were chatting before, we were curious about um, what year did you start Apex Shark Expeditions in? So we started in 2001. And have you seen a change in what has motivated people to participate in these tours over time? Like, was there like um, a main draw for folks in the early days and has that changed at all? Or is it like the sharks and it's stayed consistent? I, I think it's just the exposure of sharks that people, you know, know that they can come out and see a shark. So, you know, in the early days, not that many people knew that a shark diving was something that you could come and do. But once we started doing the, the shows for Shark Week and, you know, there, was, there were lots of other shows, BBC, National Geographic, you know, obviously the reputation of being able to come to South Africa and see sharks became, you know, quite a thing to do. And at its peak, 100,000 people used to come to South Africa with a, with a number one intention of going shark diving. So I think South Africa just built up that reputation of being a, a spot to to come and do something that that's on your bucket list. You know, it's a life highlight to come and see a great white shark. So it was something very very special that you could do. Oh my goodness! And on that's these a lot of people on these tours, is this 
do you see a shark every time or do you have to set the expectation that you might not see one? Yeah, the documentaries don't help at all with that. <laughs> you know, when it was in a 40-minute in a program, it took three weeks to make. So it can be a little bit tricky. And you do need to remind people that, that it is wildlife. But um, there, there is something important that we that we have not touched on. And I think I briefly touched on the beginning where we've had, we have seen massive changes in the great white shark population in South Africa. Um, and the, the really um, hard truth is that at Seal Island, which is this, was this world-famous spot for seeing great white sharks, we have not seen a great white shark there since 2018. So, yeah, it is a, um, an absolute catastrophe uh, from an ecological point of view. And obviously, from an emotional point of view, it's been something that's been very um, difficult to deal with. But, um, you know, nature um, reacts to things very quickly and um, we can talk about why we think that has happened. But at Seal Island, um, as soon as the great white sharks had, you know, left that area, we actually had two other species of sharks come in. So we had seven gill sharks fill in a gap and we also had bronze whaler sharks or copper sharks that, that also came into the area. And that's purely because the great white sharks are not there anymore, that these sharks can now spend time in our area. So we actually are, are running our tours really successfully with these two species of sharks. And um, it's really great that, you know, people are keen to see a shark, even if it's not a great white shark. You know, there's other species that are also, you know, incredibly fascinating and very interactive and a really amazing opportunity to spend time with a, with a wild animal like that. So, so yeah, um, just like nature adapted, we also with our tours have also had to adapt. <laughs> and what are... Um some of the main contributors to that declining population? Is it that their food sources are more limited or is something happening to Absolutely. the sharks more directly? So it's quite a, um, it, uh, there's a lot of different factors that we, that we think have contributed, which with, with a couple main ones. Um, the first thing is, is that from a genetic point of view, the great white sharks in South Africa had a very low genetic diversity, which means that there were not a lot of adults producing uh, in, in, the, in the breeding category. So the genetics were very, very similar. And what that means is when you have low genetics, when you have a, a big change to your environment or you have a problem to deal with, it's very difficult to, to adapt to new situations. So, for instance, if you have a, a big diversity, you might have sharks that feed on certain fish species, you know, more likely some feed more on seals, you know, they're quite varied. So, the you know, where a problem is created, the others that are not involved in that, you know, are not so reliant on that particular prey species, they'll be okay. But it's not the case with great whites in South Africa. So we had a couple things happen. We have the Natal Sharks Board, which is a government um, anti or bathe safety, um, uh, uh, what would I call it, um, initiative, which has been going since the 60s, where they catch between 11 and 60 great white sharks per year. So that is a lot of animals from a very small population. So that so that is a that's a huge amount of pressure. We have great white sharks that are caught as bycatch and fishing. We have um, amateur fishermen that actually catch great white sharks off the beaches. Great whites don't do well when they're put under a lot of stress, and a lot of them die from that. Um, and then also there, um, there have been a, um, situations where orcas have caught and killed a number of great whites, especially in the Khanspai area. Um, but what happens with orca attacks is that has a short to medium term effect where, you know, the sharks are, 
um, have been threatened, they'll leave the area, but they still need to return to that area because it's a preferred uh, hunting or feeding area for them. Um, but the, the real contributor, which we think has really tipped the scales, is that a fishery was started in 2012 that focused on catching smaller species of sharks, so soupfin and smoothhound sharks. And um, because this was fishing on, done on an industrial scale, both of these shark populations um, plummeted really quickly. And, um, and this is a, a prey item that the great white um, is very, very reliant on. So in our area in False Bay, the numbers of those sharks are very, very limited now to hardly any being around anymore. So we, we think that the habitat is no longer suitable for the great white shark in our area. And of course, if the habitat is not right, there's no reason for them to be there. As far as these people, though, who are these fishermen and people that are capturing these sharks, are there no laws or regulations in place to prevent that? Or do they just break the law and do it anyway? Right. So, so, this, so this is the issue. It was a new fishery that was uh, permits were given without any environmental um, you know, um, um, EIA done, so an assessment done. And instead of limiting the quota, so the number of sharks that were caught, they only limited the number of boats that could fish for them. So they were given six licenses, but 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 no quota. So they didn't they didn't cap the amount of sharks that were caught. And these boats became obviously highly skilled at catching the animals. So it was essentially a free for all. It's kind of like is and are they selling these? Are they selling parts of the sharks? Like kind of like ivory with elephants so it is all legal which is frightening um and it actually gets exported from south africa to australia where it's used for fish and chips yeah oh wow so, i did not know that yeah so it's 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 quite unbelievable how you know how, how you know taking something out of the ecosystem can have such a catastrophic you know, effect. And you kind of think, well, maybe fish and chips is not that important, you know? <laughs> and I, I'm imagining for, for someone like yourself who has had the, you know, the experience of really getting to connect with these animals on a much deeper and intimate level. And, you know, you're talking about their personalities and getting to see these same, you know, the same sharks year after year. What kind of emotional impact does that have on you I guess seeing people totally disregard this yeah. wildlife and and just not have any care for it whatsoever. Well, I mean, from an emotional point of view, it's been completely heartbreaking. You know, the the, the you know they they form such an important part of our lives. So you know, to 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 know what the problem is and not being able to do something about it has been something very very difficult to deal with. Um, but for the last three or four years, we, uh, along with a few other individuals, we cam campaigned very hard within South Africa to have the fishery stopped or to put some, you know, better management practices in place. And I guess the outcome from that is, um, although they haven't limited the, the number of um, smoothhound and soupfin sharks that can be caught, they've introduced what's called a slot limit. So you can't catch sharks of a size under a size or the larger breeding adults. So we're hoping that that is going to give them somewhat of a break to to be able to recover. But it is it is a long it is a long road going forward, and it's going to take a lot of time. So yeah, from an ecological point of view, catastrophic, and from an emotional point of view, yeah, it's hard to describe. 
are there things that sort of everyday people might be able to do to help raise awareness for the conservation and protection of sharks? Like, obviously there's, you're so involved in this space and there are things that you are probably able to do better, access that you're able to get to certain groups or people that the average person may not, but what are some things that we could do just to help try to make the situation somewhat better? As an individual, you know, you often feel overwhelmed at all the world's problems and, you know, helpless as to what you can do. But I think it's really important to understand that the choices that you make are extremely important and they they can make a difference because, you know, as a collective, if we all start making the right choices, eventually that's, you know, going to snowball into effective change. So, you know, for instance, with the, the smoothhound shark and the soupin shark that gets sent to Australia for flake or for fish and chips, it, you know, people over there can choose or they can say, you know what, I actually don't want to eat that. I would rather choose a more sustain, sustainable option. So, you know, there are other fish in the sea that are managed better, which are in much better, um, healthier states than what sharks are. And if everybody decides to to not eat the flake and rather choose something that's more sustainable, you know, the demand goes away. And with there's no demand, it has a huge um, impact on the other side where the fishing is taking place. So I think that, you know, if there are problems that people hear about, just, you know, really take the time every day and think about the choices that you make. I mean, it could be buying that, you know, bottle of plastic water, you know, do I really need to do that or can I just take my you know, my my reusable bottle with me. So they might seem like small things, but if we all start doing the small things, they turn into bigger things. Oh, absolutely. It just takes a few small steps to get started. And then I think people realize how easy it is to make responsible choices. It's actually not that hard. Um, As I mentioned before, there's like a lot of conversation right now in the Northeast part of the United States about great whites, because we've Mm. seen such an uptick of them in certain areas, especially off of Long Island in New York and now off of you know, Massachusetts. What, um, and I, of course, I'm not like expecting you to be able to solve this problem for us, but you know, what are some, can we coexist with them in a safe way? And if so, maybe what are some strategies that communities can start to think about as a way to balance you know, having families going to the beach and wanting to be in the water, but also the reality of having these sharks sharing the waters with us and the fact that they're migrating into these areas because we've changed their habitats in other places. Yeah, so I actually think that the first thing to talk about how interesting your situation is in that area because the great white shark started returning, I know specifically to the Cape Cod area because the ecosystem started becoming healthier. <laughs> so um, I know that um, I think it's gray seals that are along that coast and I'm not sure which species of seal that it is. But um, those seals started moving back into the area. And, of course, we know that great white sharks feed on seals. So when there's prey available, they're going to be in that area. But also, um, offshore from Cape Cod, they've been better managing their spiny dogfish fishery. So with those numbers of smaller sharks increasing, you know, on the outside of those areas, again, it's a healthier habitat and that is what great white sharks feed on. So what we've seen in South Africa, our ecosystem has degraded and the sharks have left, whereas in your part of the world, the ecosystem was better managed and we saw the return of great white sharks, which is amazing. Um, But I think um, what's really good to understand is that great white sharks do not want to eat people. 
Um, we don't have the energy, high energy content that seals do or, you know, energy from, you know, the smaller shark species that I've been talking about. You know, their livers have a lot of energy that the sharks get from. So we are not a good thing for them to eat. We don't give them too much. <laughs> so the most important thing to understand is, is that we are not on their menu, which is quite a comforting thing. Um, and they are also very discerning hunters. If there's something that they are not sure about or something that they don't want to eat, they're not going to rush in and grab you. At the, at, the, at the very most, they might come up for a gentle nudge, which granted can cause big injuries, um, but they are not actively looking to hunt us. Um, and I know that the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, which is in based in Cape Cod, and they have a, I think they have a headquarters in Provincetown as well, they are doing amazing work with raising awareness about great white sharks in the area. And um, they're very involved in, you know, getting people to share the water with sharks on a safe basis. So, you know, if your listeners are really wanting to find out more, I'd really suggest that they have a look at the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy. And they have a lot of programs in place, which I think they, they warn beach users if there's, you know, maybe more sharks in the area, close to swimming areas. They have spotted planes up all the time. So they've been really proactive right from the very beginning in making people understand that it's a privilege to have sharks in their waters. And you know what? Let's do our best to live or coexist with them. I think we should put a disclaimer on this, though, that just because they don't want to eat you doesn't mean maybe you should go up and try well, to pet a shark. I think you need to understand that we people, we make mistakes all the time, right? Yeah. Sometimes by sharks or other sharks do make mistakes. <laughs> I, I, I am going to backtrack a little bit. We were talking about conservation. Recently, I went to the Redwoods in Northern California and it, you know, I've, I've, I feel like I'm very privileged in the sense that I've gotten to travel and see a lot of beautiful ecological spaces. And for, for me in particular, that space, just seeing these trees that were hundreds and hundreds of years old, it, it was, it was a little bit overwhelming to be honest with you. It was just so breathtaking and beautiful. And I remember when I was, when we were on one of our hikes, I just thought to myself, if people, if more people could have the experience of going and actually connecting with the environment and nature, I feel like there would be a greater sense of urgency to want to protect it because I was just trying to imagine like a strip mall, you know, like them tearing down all of these redwoods and, and putting a strip mall there um, and how sad, you know, and, and terrible that would be. I, do you feel like when people go on these expeditions that it changes their, I guess, the sense of urgency on their part to want to protect the environment because they actually got to connect with, with yeah. it. I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I think um, we as human beings miss the point that we, we are, we are part of nature. That is where we come from and we're not separate to it. So what's really important to, to our well-being is to feel that connection to the earth and to wildlife and to everything that makes us healthy. And, um, I think it's, I call it soul food, you know, um, that when you do spend time in nature, it just, um, yeah, it just gives you a sense of the importance of the whole world living together. And it's not just us on our smartphones racing around, you know, in the concrete jungle. That's, yeah, I don't believe that that's the right way that we should be living. And I think everybody can benefit from from any connection to nature. And and the thing is, you know, not everybody has the same opportunities of traveling to all these amazing places and seeing incredible natural things. You know, it could be as simple as putting a bird feeder in your garden and seeing what birds come to it. And, 
you know, that gives you a huge amount of, of satisfaction, you know, just sitting in your garden and watching what's around you. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of simple ways that you can find to, to connect with nature. It can just be taking your dog for a walk in the woods, you know, it gives you what you need. And I think it reminds us of, of where we've come from and where we need to be aware of where we need to be more often. And it reminds you, you know, why we need great storytellers, why we need people like you and Chris, you know, we talked a little bit about his photography, your involvement with the storytelling through a Discovery Shark Week, but you have a new initiative that you're working on. You're working on a children's book that I think is going to play a big role in how small people are going to be able to understand the importance of nature. Could you tell us a little bit about this project? Sorry. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm like children, kids. I was like, is is kids the universal term? Is that an American thing? Oh my God. (laughs) We'll probably edit that out. I'm going to use four people from now on. I like that. (laughs) Um, Well, you know, um, Chris and I don't have kids and we have three dogs. So all our parental care and feelings go into the three dogs, right? They are our our fur children. And um, (laughs) I don't know if you want to keep this part in, but um, Sandy is a street dog that that we rescued and rehomed. And exactly, Aww. exactly sixty days after we rehomed her, four puppies popped out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, we ended up keeping two of the puppies and Sandy, the, the mom, and they became our part of our family. And of course, you know, when Chris and I go to see, of, of course, the the kids need to come with. You know, so so the dogs started coming to see from us from when they were very young. And what was amazing was that whenever we would come across marine megafauna the dogs would be absolutely fascinated in what they were seeing. So, I mean, these dogs are very fortunate. They have seen great white sharks. They've seen mako sharks, blue sharks, uh, humpback whales, southern right whales, sperm whales, dolphins, seals, sunfish, the albatross, the, I mean, the works. <laughs> and, um, I mean, it became apparent how interested they were in these animals. And what was even more fascinating was how the animals uh, that they were seeing at were interested in the dogs as well. So like animals like seals, or when we would come across or go to the seal colony, um, you know, they would jump in the air and they would, you know, scoot around the boat and bark at the dogs and dogs would bark at them. And there was, you know, a lot of interaction going on And with dolphins. We've had dolphins come up to the side of the boat and shake their heads at the dogs. So, you know, when I saw all of this interaction happening, I knew, I knew it was pretty unique. And um, I just thought to myself that, you know, our lessons in conservation that we have learned is that, you can't be species specific when you're trying to protect something. You need to look after the entire ecosystem. And that's where we fall in short with conservation. So when I saw the dogs and everything and all the animals interacting, I thought, you know what, this would be an, a really amazing opportunity to um, basically put a children's book together that talks about the ecosystem, but tell it through the eyes of the dogs, you know, because um, I, I know kids love dogs and yeah, it's a very unique situation. So Sandy and the Salty Sea Dogs is essentially about the adventures of the dogs going to sea. And when they're out at sea, they, they're learning about the ecosystem because they get to meet the different role players, you know, in the, in the food chain. And they get to learn about the different adaptions each species has and how important each one's role is. So, yeah, it was, you know, you kind of think to yourself, you know, you can make differences in many, in lots of ways. And, you know, governments are difficult to, to, to fight a lot of the time, 
But, you know, young kids, if they can start learning how important the ecosystem is, it's a mindset from the beginning, which I think is going to is, is what we're going to need going forward. You know, biodiversity is so, or the health of biodiversity is so important to our planet. And what people don't realize as well is it's also important to our own health as hum, humankind as well. <laughs> so, yeah, I just thought it was a great opportunity to, to sow that idea of let's look after the ecosystem and let's understand the ecosystem. And I have a niece who's eight years old who is obsessed with wildlife, broadly speaking. And she she just got a snake. She's Great. begging her parents. She's begging my sister and her dad for a bearded dragon. So she's pretty persuasive. So I'm I'm pretty sure that she's going to win her case. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting because you know talking to her about animals and and she all she does is watch YouTube videos about wildlife, and she wow. can. She, I remember I sent her a video when I was in Thailand of, it was a spotted, big spotted lizard thing, huge. And I, I had no idea what it was. I sent a video to her and she immediately called me and she told me all about it without having to look it up. She knew what it was. I love it. But it, it, it was, it was impressive to me because here's this really small person <laughs> who, <laughs> who just had such an awareness and excitement for wildlife at such a young age and being, you know, finding these creators on the internet and books that her parents have bought her specifically for children where she's been able to create a connection with these animals, even having not met them in person yet or seen them in person yet. Right. So it's really ama- great that you're writing a book like this, especially around conservation too, um, that is going to bring awareness for these young people. Yeah. And what is the age range target for for so this book? It's it's sixty-nine years. So I'm okay. I wanted to, to the dogs talk and the boat talks and all the other wildlife talks. So I wanted to put it in that range where, you know, kids can still understand the fantasy element or, you know, you know, believe in fantasy. So yeah, it's really interactive. Um it's got great visuals as well, because we've got amazing photographs of the dogs with the penguins and with the gannets and the dolphins. And, and yeah, so I also have some um, illustrations as well that bring the fantasy element to life as well. So yeah, it, it's, it's been really fun. It's been a great challenge. <laughs> That's wonderful. I feel like this is something that Anya and I are going to read and get excited about. Your age range is going to expand <laughs> into people in their early thirties who love dogs and, and wildlife. Um, do you have a time frame in mind for when the book might become available and how can folks find it once it is released? So it is in design phase at the moment and I'm talking with the publisher, but I think it's still probably going to be towards the end of the year that it's actually going to be ready. Unfortunately, these things take a lot of time, more than what you think to get going, but I'd love to keep you guys in the loop um, when it is ready and when it is available. Yeah, that would be awesome. Please do. And, you know, we're, um, we're now doing... For our listeners, we're now doing a monthly newsletter as well, just a roundup of okay. you know which episodes we published, but then also going back to some of our previous guests and sharing some updates from you know different initiatives that they're working on. A lot of our guests have nonprofits and and things like yeah. that, so um, you know we would love to you know include this once it's it's out and available. Great, thank you. <laughs> And then as far as other projects that you have in the works, what are, what are you most excited about that, uh, what you're working on next? Sure. Well, the ping pong is always going in the background. (laughs) 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 So, um, 
we actually we're really fortunate. We've got a we've got a very busy travel schedule coming up starting in, in August where we're gonna be um, doing a lot of wildlife trips. We're gonna be going to Namibia and Zimbabwe. And then we're also going to be spending some time in Mexico with great white sharks and striped marlin. So the, the rest of the year is really taken up with a wildlife travel. But, um, you know, all the time we're working on Chris's fine art photography. And um, what I didn't mention as well is Sandy and the Salty Sea Dogs will eventually be a series. So I'm always working in the background with the next books that are coming as well. <laughs> I love that. I'm excited for you. It sounds like you're busy and your life does not seem boring by any means. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Um, yeah, as I said before, it's always, it's just such a privilege to have the opportunities that we do. And you just have to say yes to everything because once you open one door, the next one opens and you just keep going forward like that. <laughs> yeah, if you'd never gotten on that boat with Chris, who knows where you'd be now, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we have um, we have three questions that we ask every guest, um, and they're these are not trick questions, but probably ones that you have not prepped for. <laughs> That's fine. I like those ones. <laughs> so, if first of all, you you have such a deep connection with animals, so maybe you have actually thought of this one. But if you could say one thing to the sharks, and you knew that they could understand what you were saying what would you want them to know? That's a, sure. Can I write a book for them? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, one thing that people don't know about sharks and they don't expect about sharks is that they are extremely vulnerable. You know, you think it's, you know, because it's, it's predator with these big teeth and, you know, it can swim so fast and they're so big that nothing can touch them, but they are extremely vulnerable. And unfortunately, it's mostly from human pressures. So if I, if, I, if I could have five minutes with a great white shark or any species of shark, I would just tell them to stay away from hooks. That is their biggest threat. So, yeah, beware of that. <laughs> That's smart. That's smart. Um, if, okay, I, I love the shy guy. He's, he's my favorite one that you did talk about as far as personality-wise. If Shy Guy had a human voice, what do you think he would sound like? And could you do an impersonation of it? Oh, no. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> oh, Shy Guy. Oh, that's a tough question. That's not fair. <laughs> um, let me think about this. Um, he's someone that doesn't have a loud voice and he speaks very softly and you guys might need to help me out here. <laughs> I'm not big on my movie stars. I can't give you a personality, but I know that he would just be really quiet and just think to himself, I don't really need to go to that boat. I just, I just kind of need to seal. <laughs> and I'm good with that. <laughs> I don't know I like who that, that sounds like. I like that. And if sharks could get away with committing a crime, let's say like a human crime, robbing a bank, anything, what type of crime do you think they'd want to be able to get away with? 
they're quite naughty, hey, but like in a fun way. So I think it would they would they would break into a candy store and steal all the best candies. <laughs> they like to have fun too. That, that's saltwater taffy. <laughs> Exactly. Imagine these like big teeth, just like chomp, chomp, chomp. (laughs) That's a great visual now. I'm just imagining a shark just breaking into a candy shop now. (laughs) The Swedish fish, they have Swedish fish in candy shops. (laughs) I think think they steal the chocolates though. I think they like the rich Mm. stuff. (laughs) That's right, because they they like the seal blubber. That makes sense. (laughs) Monique, this was Awesome. Thank you so much. Like I, we want to be respectful of your time. I'm just looking at the clock, but I think Anya and I probably could have spent another hour asking you about what you do <laughs> and caring about the sharks. This has been so much fun. Uh, it's, a, it's such a pleasure. And yeah, really being fun chatting with you guys. And I appreciate the opportunity, you know, being exposed to new audiences to, you know, tell important stories is always a great privilege. So I really appreciate that from you guys. And yeah, I love what you're trying to do. And I, I definitely want to get onto your to your list so I can keep hearing or listening to more episodes. So thank you. All right. Um, so fun. Honestly, I could have kept talking to her. I was sort of sad that we had to wrap up. I know. And I, it was fascinating, I think, for me hearing about the personalities of the sharks and, and when, especially when she talked about at towards the end about how vulnerable they are. And it just, that, when I think of vulnerability, I think of sweetness and, and unawareness too of, of your surroundings when you just don't expect danger and you don't think people are out to harm you or hurt you, but there are people that are out there to do that. Um, but I think she ha- did such a good job of creating a picture of how special and unique these animals are outside of what our perception of sharks typically are. And how smart they are. And as you said, even though they're so smart, they're so aware of what's happening around them. You know, they know that people are not supposed to be lunch. There are so many things that are hurting them that they don't understand at all. And it's really on us to be able to step in and try to do something about it. And I, I appreciate all the, the feedback that she shared just at a very basic level, you know, what, what we should be thinking about. And I, I really, I especially how she said that conservation cannot be species specific. It has to be ecosystem specific and drawing the connection between using a reusable water bottle and the impact that that has on sharks. It's easy to forget that or not understand that in the first place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I'm really excited too about her book. Yes. I want to buy one for my niece. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I want, I want one to for read me, it. Right. I, I want to read it. Yeah. It's such a wonderful <laughs> idea. And can you imagine what, like, we have to follow up with her, you know, when the book comes out and ask her, like, what are the dogs thinking? Like what, I guess we'll find out from the book, but can you imagine being a dog on a boat and you're seeing dolphins and whales and having all these experiences with animals that they would otherwise never, ever encounter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think starting at, at a young age too is, is so important as far as creating that connection and exposure and awareness. And, and, you know, I think if there's, I wonder too, I mean, like we think of bees, right? Like there's a crisis with bees where we need more bees 
they're so important for the environment. But when we think of bees, we think of that you get stung by them. We don't think of the fact that they're beautiful or important for the environment. And the same with sharks. I feel like there's this, anything that is scary mm. or isn't seen as typically beautiful in, in that respect doesn't seem like it's as important to protect. And I think creating that connection to these types of animals that maybe seem like they could hurt us is really important still to show that the importance of the ecological system. That is such a good point. I, I love how you said that because it really calls out that things are not black and white. There's a lot of gray area. And so, yes, you can have an animal that's dangerous, but most animals are going to have some aspect to them that is dangerous you know, to us. But that's okay. It doesn't mean that they're bad. We're dangerous too. I mean, if you take that line of thinking. I was going to say, humans are probably the most we're dangerous We're the worst. So. <laughs> like, should we be around? <laughs> exactly. I don't know. I feel like if, if, if all the other species could rally and they'd be like, you know, and if we were, if humans were going as extinct, I don't think the other species would create a campaign to, to, to keep us around. I think they'd be like, you know what? We were doing fine. Totally. Without them. There'd be absolutely no uh, change.org campaign to keep no. us around. Like, get rid of them. No, they would not be outside with picket signs. No, they'd be like, they and Elon Musk can get on that rocket and they <laughs> get, get out of here. Well, on that note, <laughs> thanks everyone for tuning in again to these episodes. We always appreciate your support. Follow us on Spotify and like our episodes, like podcasts on iTunes, any platform. Follow us on Instagram, support us on Patreon. Like Julia said, we also have a newsletter so you can keep up to date with everything. And we'll see you next time.